Well, welcome back, everyone. And how good's the intro music to Sub Zero Coffee? The today's guest, he can't yet hear the Sub Zero intro coffee, Sub Zero Coffee intro music. But I'm here. I am dancing along, dancing away to it because it's a funky little bit, and you'll get to listen to it next week. Judging from how you were moving. Well, hang on. I haven't even introduced you yet. You now you're you're spoiled it. But anyway, um, if you haven't told, if you if you weren't able to tell from the uh, from the voice today's guest is the first world brewster champion to come on to this podcast uh and today's guest is dale harris from the uk welcome dale hello mate thank you for having me no worries uh, dale before we get started i just need to sort of clear the air on something you've got like uh um you've got a voice like akin to morgan freeman or david david attenborough like <laughs> You know, here I am hosting the podcast, but it should really be you. Have you ever been told that you've got an excellent voice for radio? No one has ever said that. People do like to, I'm going to say mock uh, my accent or lack of accent. I kind of, uh, I I pick up little bits from everyone that I talk to and change over time. And Mm. no one knows where I'm from. So I'll meet kind of new customers and they're like, you from South Africa, you from... uh, Poland? Are you from Italy? Are you from? I'm like, no, I'm from the pretty boring. Uh, my Kiwi friends say from the Wop Wops. The Wop Wops. Uh, the Wop Wops, but from the the very rural, backward part of the UK. Okay, well, no, I love it, and you know, honestly, you, you put my you, you you said before you've got you've got a number of kids. I mean, story time before bed would have been excellent, you know, growing <laughs> up in the, the Harris household because I I really wish you had a voice. Uh, I wish I had a voice like that. It'd make the podcast a lot interesting, a lot more interesting and better. So everyone can just be put to bed by the soothing sound of Dale Harris's voice today. So well, we want them to stay up. We want them to be stimulated. <laughs> that's right listen to Dale he's the host of the podcast now but um so where are you based where is this where is this location in England you speak of so I've, I've moved from one kind of backward dull part of the UK to another so right now we're in Stafford which is where the the Royal Street that I work at is based so we're just north of Birmingham and that's has been that's has been yeah uh we're in Stafford because that's where our founder was born and or very close to. And he built the business here because he wanted to be close to family. It's a terrible location in terms of customers. Mm. Uh, we're not close. Like we're close to a few of the smaller cities in the UK. We're close to Birmingham, which is the second biggest. But like the market is London. London is this huge international city. It's like 10% of the population in this tiny little window. Um, but because we are such a long way away from there, our rent is cheap. We have lots of space. We can grow uh, really fast. We're really good for transport links. So we're able to get coffee pretty much, well, anywhere in the UK within, 20, within 24 hours. Uh, the very north of Scotland, maybe 48 sometimes. Uh, but we're like next to massive FedEx hub, massive DPD hub, massive DHL hub. So we can pretty much move stuff quickly at a low cost, which means that we can, whatever we charge for coffee, that's either going to like support the staff or to support the producers. It's well, not going to pay off a landlord, right? Yeah, well, I mean that's that's a plus. And you know what else? The it's it's probably a good situation to be in in a, in during the pandemic because I think a lot sure. of people are thinking, well, why on earth? You know, I'm I'm sitting here in under the harshest one of the harshest lockdowns in the world right now in Victoria, and kind of makes you think, why the hell do I live in a city? Um, you know, the pristine beaches of Northeast Australia sound a lot better right now, but hey, here we are. Um, so you're in 
Stafford. Um, and what are your, what, Dale, uh, what, something I usually like to ask of guests who come onto the podcast, we like to get to know the person behind the coffee professional. What are your interests outside of coffee? What does Dale Harris get up to in his days off? I'm pretty weird and pretty, pretty dull. Uh, so coffee, the things I like in coffee or the things that I've enjoyed doing in coffee kind of permeate into other fields. That's one of my so, favorite words, permeate. <laughs> like while I was doing this weekend, uh, there's a, there's a restaurant in Chicago called Alinea and they have a cocktail bar called the aviary and the aviary, uh, or all of the work they do, they had their own kind of book publishing system now because they weren't really happy with what they were getting from recipe books and they made probably the most beautiful cookbook in the world or at least one of them. And then they created one for their cocktail bar. And recently they released one for uh, specifically for non-alcoholic cocktails. Cocktails. Yeah. So the approach that they have to, I guess, building stuff that has the same complexity and interest as a boozy cocktail, the same depth of flavor, which is really hard to achieve without alcohol, right? Alcohol carries flavor really well, adds texture, it, it changes how you drink drinks. You know, if you're drinking something with a lot of alcohol, you drink it more slowly, which means you perceive flavor at a different rate and you really think about the drink. If you swap that for a fruit juice, the person drinking the fruit juice is drinking it faster. They're not really thinking about what they're drinking. So the timing of their experience changes. So anyway, there's this book and part of the beginning is almost like replicating spirits without alcohol. So I was doing a massive cook of, I don't know, popcorn and spices and herbs to make 300 ml of a fake tequila, which is still settling in my fridge. And that is a happy day for me when I mess around in the kitchen for no good purpose, because I don't have anyone to share these drinks with right now. Mm. This is just for the, uh, I guess, the experience of learning something and seeing how that might work and what it might taste like. Um, and and like, I bake a lot. Uh, I, I like to pretend that I was the first person making sourdough before lockdown. You know, I was... Sourdough became really <laughs> cool this year, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so now I'm cool. over it. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, before it was mainstream. Like, uh, <laughs> I love actually my biggest problem is because I was working through like a lot of people in the UK were, were put on like furlough and weren't working but all of my team at the roastery were working all the way through it so I was packing coffee with them uh, for like 12 weeks so I'm looking at all the pictures of other people's loaves getting better and better on Instagram and I'm like mine are getting worse you know I've <laughs> I've failed to maintain the, the, the basic standard but I love to bake. I love to, particularly techniques, like trying to understand how things work and what that means. And it doesn't really matter whether I share that with somebody. It matters to me whether I get better at doing the thing. So if I'm making uh, croissants or I'm making kind of like, I went through a, a period of making some entremets and things like that. I want my glaze to be better the next time I do it. I want to understand what's causing the problems. I don't need to be really good, but I need to understand how it works and what it would take to be better. It sounds and to me like you're a, you're a very analytical person in a way, like you'll, you'll break something down and, and, and systematically work out how to improve it. Would that be fair? Yeah, except I'm pretty bad at it. I think, I think the, the desire and the thought process is there, but I'm pretty bad at taking notes. I'm pretty bad at 
not going all in into something. <laughs> You're talking so like, to a guy who has ADHD. It's one of the worst cases in the world. <laughs> uh, I think we're all on a spectrum. I'm definitely, <laughs> I'm definitely somewhere on a spectrum. So. <laughs> well, That's a pretty good rundown rundown dale and um i didn't i didn't know these things about you but interesting you bring up about cocktails and i did warn warn you before you came on that we'd go on some tangents on this podcast and interesting you bring up the thing about cocktails because i think we have a lot of things to learn in coffee from the cocktail and alcohol industry um you know i i'm friends with with a guy in melbourne who's a mixologist his name's lewis baldwin and one of his uh former co-workers orlando marzo who is the former uh, world class, world bartending champion, and yeah. some of the some of the things they do are absolutely whack. They really help me in barista competition, making a signature drink. So I really think we shouldn't copy any other industry, but we should be open and we should be learning from all of them. Uh, coffee is pretty young, like actually, like so, cocktails or like mixed drinks. Really, the history is like there's a long history of weird things that have happened, like 500 years, but what we think of as a cocktail now is really like a hundred years old, 120, something like that. Like end of the 19th, uh, 19th century, end of the, yeah. End of the 19th century, like in the U S there's this real like explosion and any constancy, the same way that we see with like specialty coffee now in, in a city like Melbourne or a city like London, that there's a quantity or a mass of people doing similar things that it becomes a scene in its own right. Right. Uh, and then a lot of that kind of fell away over the war, over prohibition and stuff like that. And it was really slow to come back. And then you get, I guess, between the, the glamorous weirdness of the 80s and then like the last 30, 40 years, it's kind of got more polished and better. But it's all based on systems that existed before. Um, it's just being refined and tidied up and presented in new ways. But I think the real advantage that somebody who works in cocktails has is they're mostly working with fixed groups of ingredients so like yes there's a huge range of diversity in any spirits so let's say rum like you've got four four maybe five classes of rum or styles of rum and then you have you know hundreds of individually slightly different dark rums right based on different spice mixes or different processes that have gone in but you can begin making cocktails and you can begin in that industry knowing, okay, well, rum plus this, plus this makes this drink. And it tastes like this. And you can taste the same thing more or less that the best bartender in the world is making. If you follow their recipe, if you really understand, you know, where the challenges in their recipe are, where the differences in the ingredients are. So you can understand the standard and then you can start playing, well, what if I do this differently? What if I use a different rum? What if I use a you know, my, a stronger sugar syrup or dilute more with ice or whatever. So you begin to really quickly, you, you understand the standard and then you are able to adjust it with controllable variables. Whereas in coffee and particularly espresso, um, you've got all this complexity from the roast, from challenges around green being inconsistent or being different from different places right so you could be trying to i could try and replicate a coffee that you made i could have coffee from costa rica i could have washed coffee from costa rica i could have it roasted to the same agtron level 
I could even brew it to the same espresso recipe with the same machine, even with the same water. So I can try and control all these things. And all of that's really hard to do. But my confidence that what I'm tasting is going to be the same as what you're tasting is zero. Well, it's interesting you bring this. <laughs> it's very interesting you bring this up, Dale, because I interviewed uh, uh, Benjamin Put, who uh, you would yeah. know, and I interviewed him on the podcast. He was in the podcast that we released just yesterday. So today is the today is Tuesday, the eighteenth of August, and uh, I released the Ben Put podcast yesterday. And in the Ben Put podcast, we sort of spoke a little bit about this. We touched on this where he where I said, well, it's not like with wine. You know, there's obviously a lot of skill in being a sommelier, but um, you know, cracking up a bottle, cracking open a bottle of wine, you can sort of consi- consistently expect certain flavors, or you, you know, it's very repeatable. Whereas in coffee, it's not. And it's one of those, um, you know, freezing coffee. You know, just to sort of toot my own toot my own horn here a bit. Uh, freezing coffee sort of helps um, get that repeatability. But you're exactly right. It's it's very hard, and it's it's you know, you're taking in roast, green differences in harvest from year to year. Uh, grind the grinding would be the big one because no two grinders are the same, which is the biggest pain in the ass. But um, anyhooser, we went. A, we went. A, what I was going to ask you next, next Dale, because you're the host of the podcast now and you're doing a terrific job. <laughs> with what I ask you next <laughs> with with that with that voice, that mesmerizing voice of yours is how I was going to ask you, Dale. How did you get your start in coffee? Um, I I think most people accidentally fall into coffee they're they're doing something else and they start doing it and fall in love i chose to take a job in an industry where no one gets paid much money and there are lots of issues and challenges and problems with it i i had a different job a different career selling clothes and one thing led to another and i realized i wasn't happy in that job and i think you know talking about hobbies or like how someone thinks my biggest problem is if I, if I decide something mentally, if I, if I come to a realization and something in my life doesn't match that realization, I find it really, really hard. So as soon as I decided or felt that the job I was doing was an unhappy thing, every day was a chore. It was killing me. You know, before it was fine. I was doing it, but as soon as I kind of, oh shit, this isn't for me. It was so difficult and I just made this decision and I was in a lucky place that I could, you know, I had just about enough money in the bank to go, you know what, I don't need to do this. I can try again. I can start again. What do I really love? And I was a home barista, you know, I had a really cheap, really bad, it was called an espresso machine, but really it was a, you know, a 14 bar high power bad brewer with a plastic porter filter kind of thing but i was reading the blogs and i was again thinking about those techniques you know i was reading a blog and i was understanding where if i tamp it like this or if i grind it like this the taste changes. and really enjoying the fact that i had that much control over how it tasted that i could manipulate flavor and make it better um as i could do this forever so i'm just going to do this so i got a job at uh, working for a chain uh, or a franchise belonging to a chain, wiping tables at a motorway service station. And the first day was terrible. You know, anybody who is not like working on a cafe floor 
it is hard to imagine how tiring it is at the end of the day. And once you're doing it, you get used to it really quickly and you think it's normal to, to get home with sore feet. It's amazing what you can do and get through a day. And it's amazing that, sure. you know, it's amazing how you become adverse to, you know, say for example, you might go to a, to a nightclub pre COVID times and, um, yeah. you know, not have any sleep, but still be able to go work, <laughs> work 13 hours that, you know, it's amazing what you become able to adapt to. Yeah. And maybe, you know, I don't want to talk too much about disasters facing us all, but like, if there's a good thing out of these lockdowns or these challenges, if we can grab a silver lining from a really big storm cloud, it is maybe reconsidering what we do and just choosing. Because you can do, like, I don't care what anyone does or, you know, what, what I do should be right for me. It doesn't need to be right for anyone else. But most of the time we don't get to choose. We just do what we did yesterday, maybe a bit better, maybe a bit faster, but we just do more of the same. Mm. And this kind of interruption, um, however it affects different people's lives or businesses, if they're able to grab a choice out of that and go, no, I'm choosing to do this. I want to do this. This is why I want to do it. Maybe there will be I guess something positive at the other end. It's kind of re it's kind of redefined, you know, that anything is really possible at the moment because it's just taken basic economics, basic health systems, everything, smashed yeah. it on its head and just sort of now we're kind of picking up the pieces and we we're really gonna have to rebuild new societies in many different ways. And you're right, Dale, it's um you know, it's it's taking us back to this position where we might think, okay, well, I have a choice to go this direction or this direction. And, you know, because really we're at rock bottom in a way now, how much yeah. worse could it get? So, you know, you're right. it's only up <laughs> from here to everyone listening. It is only up from here. So that's the good news. Well, just to ask a couple of questions about you, because you, you were doing pop-ups, right? And mm -hmm. then you opened a store. Mm -hmm. How long ago did you open the store? Oh, that would or, be or what, how long before things got shut down. Okay, so we were setting up the cafe uh, at the beginning of July, I think it was. Yeah. And then, so two days before we opened, stage three started, which for us means you have to go to takeaway, which is kind of makes reserve coffee lose all its nuance in a way. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, you want to pay for $30 Australian for a cup of filter and a takeaway. It's like, yeah. you know, it kind of loses I, its pizzazz, Dale. It's one of... One of my big kind of challenges around what the future might look like or what I want it to look like, regardless of what it will, is this whole idea of what the experience of buying coffee in a cafe is like and what we want it to be like. Because if we, if we can make new rules or we can decide what we choose to do, um, I don't have a problem with anyone buying a takeaway cappuccino. Coffee and milk is nice. It's a happy thing. Um, but it is not the experience that I love from the cafe. And if I'm really honest, before, before I worked in coffee, before I was being a work as a home barista, I fell in love with cafes before I fell in love with coffee. So there was a, there was a cafe above a bookshop doing espresso drinks. I was at college. I was just beginning to work out who I was and buying a, you know, I don't know, a hazelnut mocha or whatever it was that I was drinking became part of, this is me growing up. This is me being like an adult. This is me, you know, doing something that's mine rather than something that I was told to do at school or by my parents, whatever. Uh, and I fell in love with 
the staff working behind the bar, you know, they were cute, they were working together, they were doing a thing, they were passionate. I fell in love with the conversations they were having with customers and that kind of shared space, third space idea that like people drop in, people drop out, it's a community. Um, and a little bit of the experience of learning because I was effectively going to school in that cafe. So I started with mochas and then I'm progressing to lattes and cappuccinos and eventually espresso. Uh, this way before filter was cool. And in that kind of way, I was, I was having an education as part of the experience of going to cafes. So if all those things that I value are tied to weirdos sitting down and having time to share with other people, right? It's a social thing. And yes, I fell in love with coffee through that. And maybe the coffee became more and more important to me and that experience became less and less important. But now I, because we're in a small town, it's not like there's five espresso bars around the corner from me. There really aren't. If I want to go and get good coffee, well-made, you know, it's probably 20 minutes drive, half hours drive, whatever, to a great cafe. And then stand in the queue, maybe outside in the rain, wait 10 minutes, to get a paper cup, which I, you know, for multiple reasons despise, but if I'm gonna be a real snob, I'm gonna despise it because of its impact or lack of positive impact on flavor more than the sustainable thing. Mm. You know, if it's made from recycled paper, if there's a way of fixing it, actually the, the real cost to the environment is much smaller of a paper cup than we like to make out because they're so visible and because it looks like this huge problem. But I don't want to drink a great, particularly a great filter coffee out of a paper cup. You know, I want to drink great filter coffee slowly. I want to drink it out of something that is inert and maybe adds to the experience by the weight of it, by the shape of it, by all of those little cues. I want to drink it slowly enough that it gets cold while I'm drinking it. So the flavor really changes. Um, I think that's, again, one of the things that's super exciting about coffee that most other industries don't have is that our product is our product is really alive right that just just the cup of coffee that we serve a customer is changing has movement has depth to it that evolves over time in a way that some cocktails do some wines do a little bit but that's much more tied to how the body perceives the flavors or a very narrow range of temperature change as a cocktail begins to warm up or as a wine warms or cools. Um, but with coffee, you've got, instead of like a 10 degree or a 20 degree range, maybe you've got like 40, 50 degrees. And the chemistry of what we're drinking is changing from allowing us to taste really simple parts of the coffee when it's hot to this completely different product when it's cold, when it's, you know, there's more citric acid in a cold cup of coffee than there is in a hot cup of coffee. It's a different thing. And I love that journey. And I want to sit somewhere next to other people and go, wow, this one tastes really good. And then to go, no, I hate it now. Mate, wanna... you're, you're going to absolutely love coming to Sub-Zero Coffee when, you know, when international when travel is permitted. You're going to absolutely love it. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's everything you're describing. And um, there's only one other shop I've been to that provides this experience, and that's Owner Coffee in Sydney. They've got a Sydney store, and that's, yep. that's sensational. Have you been there? I haven't. I've, so I've never been to Australia. Oh, it is. Dale. I was so excited That's... about WBC Melbourne because the problem is it's like it's far enough away that 
I really need an excuse because I'm bad like that. It is. It's, 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 it's so far away from everything. And, you know, living here is a reminder of that. Like you, you, it's every flight you take. I went to Sweden a few years ago yeah. and it was my first overseas trip. And, you know, I nearly, I nearly, you know, my get my Nintendo DS ran out of charge after like five hours. So I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't play Pokemon anymore. And then it was like, I, I don't sleep very well either in those situations. So, you know, you, you do the you do the airfare or the airplane standard in that situation. You watch John Wick a few times, you know, you go the one, two, three. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is, this is getting sidetracked again, but um, you're exactly right. It's, it's, it's a very great distance from the UK to Australia. So I will come as soon as, as soon as I'm allowed. I'm excited. I think, and I, you know, I'm really lucky. I'm in touch with lots of kind of cafes and different markets. And I know that there's, there's probably five to 20, maybe 50 amazing cafes that offer amazing experiences. And they change all the time. So one might close and one might reopen. Often, ones that start off really exciting after a few years, it gets hard to do. The staff move on, something changes. And you end up, that becomes a bigger business, a more successful business, more power to them. But the thing that was really exciting at the beginning kind of falls away. Um, and I have a list of cafes that like I'm desperate to visit across the world. I want more cafes to open that are less like each other. So is sub zero on that list. Yeah, for sure. Oh, like, Dale, Dale, just to quick, in, just to quickly interrupt. I had some Tim Tams and some Oreos <laughs> and a cup of tea delivered to me during this. And so I just thought I'd live the English experience, you know, set, have You're some, in a happy place. well, you know, it's 5 PM over here, 5 30 PM. I'm having a t- cup of tea and a biscuit. <laughs> to do this podcast with you know you've always got to have a cup right. of tea and so, a biscuit key question is it is it and i don't like to use the word good for anything like is it good coffee is like it's this pejorative term different people have different ideas of what good are so i could say is it specialty coffee or is it you know something else so not is it good tea but are you drinking fancy like green tea leaves or is that a mug of what we call builders tea you know breakfast tea with milk and sugar and i'm not judging you mate it's not <laughs> fancy I, I i thought well it'd be it's a nice thing to have um it's twinnings english breakfast tea bag it's it's nothing over the top it, it's the fancy edge of basic <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's not it's not you know the 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 infused oolong tea that dal harris would use in a in a world brewster championship, the Japanese oolong, I think it was. Speaking of which, that was going to be the next question I ask you. Oh, yeah. how, how did you get into competitions? And I'm just going to sit here and eat my biscuits while you explain away. Wait, it looks like you're eating a biscuit too. too long. I got into competition because I, because I was, I grew up and I was working in a corner of the UK that did not really have great coffee. Um, there was, I don't know, five years behind what was happening in the big cities, particularly maybe 10 years behind what was happening in London. And I was reading these blogs. I was reading these reviews of great cafes. It was like, I really want to be a part of this. I don't want to make bad coffee. I want to make the best coffee I can. So how do I learn to do that? Uh, And mostly it was the chance to meet people who cared about coffee. Um, And competition seemed like when I was reading the blogs or reading the, the little kind of trade magazines that we had at the time that was where things happened 
that was where people met each other. That's where the good ideas were. So I went and watched my first competition at a trade show. And I was like, this is kind of neat. This is kind of weird. Soon after, the guy who won, who uh, I haven't seen Hugo for years, but uh, Hugo, so what year was this? 2008 UK champion. So he competed in Copenhagen the year that Stephen Morrissey won. Uh, I watched him win the nationals. And maybe two months later, I was driving past the town that he had his little cafe in, oh, I still does. Um, so I took like a 40 minute detour to go and grab coffee there and taste it and be a bit fanboy. And he was super friendly and open. Uh, he's, uh, it's so long since I've seen Hugo, so I don't want to say, I don't want to describe him as I knew him then and pretend that that's what he's like now, but certainly then he was very, uh, very workmanlike about how he made coffee. He wasn't thinking kind of too high end. He was really excited about flavor. So he was running a deli, thinking about cheese and ham, wants to make coffee just as well, was working really hard at the craft of making espresso and steaming milk and thinking a lot about flavor. And he and his, his partner at the time were super friendly and they were super like, you know, no, it's cool. We want to share this. We want other people to do this. So just, you know, ask whatever questions you have if we can do anything to help. And I really didn't, I don't feel that I asked them for lots of help later on in the future, but just that engagement and that, that willingness to share and just talk to some loser who is just getting into coffee and go, no, this is something you can do. And we're all a community and we all want to help each other. That was really powerful. And pretty much everybody that I've asked questions of since over the last, you know, even now, Almost everybody I have asked for help has offered me help. Anyone I've ever asked a question of has not just given me the easy answer, but has told me their truth and what they feel about something. Um, and I think that's one of the things that for all the, for all the problems that coffee has, particularly like barista-ing and cafe work and stuff like that, for all the challenges that part of the industry has, we are not that jaded. We're not that industry like that. We're trying to protect all our secrets or we're trying to stop other people succeed. Um, I don't, you know, I have a business. I want to sell enough coffee to keep going. And when my biggest competitor grabs an account from us or does, even when they do something really cool, I'm like, oh, I wish I'd done that. Or why is it not me? But at the same time, if any of their baristas ask me for help with something, uh, or even if they did, like our world is very small. And if we work together to make things bigger, we all benefit. Mm. And exactly. I think, I think we can actually choose to keep that as long as we want. It's only, it's by choice that an industry loses that over time. It is trying to be competitive. It's trying to steal market or money away from other people to benefit you. And you know what? I really don't care to a point, if somebody buys great coffee from someone else or buys great coffee from me, if they're buying great coffee. Um, because if we can grow new customers, everyone benefits. If we can if we can drag kicking and screaming people away from the idea that coffee should be cheap and coffee should taste bad, because a lot of people still believe that. You know, well, there's the a market for shit coffee. coffee. The, people love it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and there are even days when um, I certainly had conversations with Pete, like really cool conversations about 
we're encouraging farmers to produce this really expensive, rare, difficult thing when actually maybe the numbers stack up better that they should either not produce coffee at all because it doesn't make enough money, do something else. We shouldn't sustain this terrible livelihood that over 50 years has got worse and worse. Or we should encourage them to produce really cheap shit coffee because maybe there's more money or value or return on effort in, and investment in that because there's this huge market for cheap shit coffee hmm. in all its different colors. Um, I don't believe that we should do that because at the same time, I think, and again, this is my personal belief. It's not a fact, but I've made shit products in the past, right? I have sold things that weren't very good. that were average, good enough to make money. And the joy that you get from doing that is very small. You might get paid and you might get joy from the money or you might be able to do things with the money and definitely everyone needs a job and I don't want to judge that. I've done it. But when you are making something that you are proud of and that could be a barista, but that could be a roaster or a farmer, there is joy and value and dignity in that beyond the money. Well, you're, you're, speaking, you're speaking my language here, Dale, because I could be doing many different things that, you know, I've turned down many jobs lately and, um, you know, I'm working on this project where we, you know, I've spent all my life savings pretty much on these giant yeah. freezers full of coffee and, um, you know, I was sharing a bedroom at the start of the year because, you know, didn't have much money and, you know, I'm really, really intent on keeping this thing going. I, I, I funnel everything I, I earn into Sub-Zero Coffee and, um, you know, it, I, I don't even have to question myself about it because, you know, I, I'm very confident. You know it's the right thing for you, right? Well, I'm very confident that one day it'll be viewed for what it is and that is, you know, um, people aren't, may not be able to travel as much in the near future people may not be able to do th the things that they would usually do. And I think there's a, I genuinely feel like people will go to things like, Ooh, there's this new coffee bar and I can, I can buy 50 different coffees and they all taste wildly different. And um, the yeah. guy there can explain it to me from, uh, you know, where, where he got it from, where it came from. And, and, and I'm very easily convinced that this is a fantastic thing. I think we're going there and um, you know, I'm, you're talking my language here, Dave. We So if we think about that, like post-COVID thing and the great cafes in the world, and it's always like a really useful but inaccurate comparison is restaurants, right? And what we're seeing with, at least in the UK, what we're seeing right now is a lot of the casual dining convenience chains that opened up over the last 10 years. And they were already, there was already a, a lot of them were going bust. So Jamie's Italian uh, went bust and a few others that had gone from, they had three or four cool stores. They opened 20, they opened 100. And before this kind of pandemic hit, a lot of them were running out of investment. All the stores they opened, maybe 20% of them were working out. The other 80% weren't. And so they were losing lots of jobs and maybe just disappearing. Um, particularly because there were lots of businesses doing that same thing at the same time. So there were three pizza chains that grew from five to a hundred. There were three, five, 10 burger chains that went the same way, burritos, whatever. And suddenly every high street had 10 new, all pretty good as well. So none of these were bad. The idea of it just being cheap rubbish is kind of mostly gone. 
So they were all higher quality than what you used to be able to get. They weren't really fast food. They were like convenient, good price. Somewhere to go on like a Tuesday night with the kids or, or with a few friends and with a few drinks, whatever. Um, but they've all hit this crisis point where now people are choosing between real functional stuff. So like McDonald's will be fine. The really cheap, terrible fast food, which there is a place for for everyone. Um, that will still be there. The stuff in the middle, some of it will survive. Some of it will get better at what it does, but there'll be a real reckoning for lots of them. And then the super high end will have different challenges, but they have a place because they have loyal customers. They have something really unique to offer. Um, I'm lucky that in a few different ways, I work with a few different kind of mission style restaurants in different parts of the country in really different ways. And all of them, while they've had to completely shut their restaurants and transition to different things, be it like pre-packed delivery kits arriving with customers within 24 hours, which makes meals for three days, and the chef doing a YouTube video to talk through it. And again, talking about Alinea, like, you know, I'm, I don't know, 5,000 miles from Chicago, but I'm getting the Alinea newsletter and I'm seeing what they're cooking. I'm like, God, oh, I'd move. I'd happily live two miles away from there and get that delivered. Um, like... We have, we, have, we, have a, we have a restaurant here called Attica. Uh, which, I know Attica well. Yeah, well, yeah, they're, they're, they're transitioning or pivoting, as you may say. And, yeah. you know, they're doing – everyone's, you know, right now if someone's having a lockdown birthday or an anniversary, I think the go-to move is they'll get the Attica lasagna or one of the yeah. premium Attica ranges. And it may not be the same as, as, um, as the dine-in restaurant, but, you know, I think people have very much in Melbourne have an interest in keeping this culture alive because I think – food and coffee is wine and all these different things is part of our culture. And, um, you know, I don't think anyone's really killing it in the way they were before, um, numbers wise, but, um, Melbournians like to get behind, you know, businesses like this. And really, I I, I don't think they really want to keep their, see their culture collapse, which is, um, you know, which is heartwarming, but I think the places that will, there are places that will really benefit for, they don't need to be super unique. So if you are super local, you're super independent, maybe you're in like, and again, I don't know like the geography of like Melbourne or any Australian cities, but if you're in like a more residential area and now everyone's working from home and there's this great local cafe, they've probably seen an uplift in their sales. And that will be the place that those people will want to protect when they go back. They'll want to keep onto those habits. They'll want to look after those people. If it's a big chain with 20 stores, you know what? They don't need your money. They don't need anyone's money. Everyone's going to be less precious about it. I think so places with a real local connection doing a good job will survive. Places doing really cheap and cheerful. So terrible drive through Starbucks will probably be fine. Uh, And then doesn't need to be super expensive, but high end, unique, one of a kind places because they rely on a slightly lower customer base for really engaged customers or really people who are really excited to go there for the first time. And, you know, for, for, and, you know, mission size, just one way of deciding which restaurants are good, but like for a super high end restaurant, they were probably already reliant on customers who were coming maybe once in their life or once a year, you know, silver wedding anniversary for the, the old, French style kind of fancy restaurants or 
you know, your birthday treat for the young, hip, cool, you know, new place that's doing forage ingredients, whatever. And as a customer, you were already willing to spend a lot of money on this once once in a lifetime experience or once in a year experience, maybe you go to a different one. So they're already used to dealing with that like lower volume, but higher quality, higher value. Mm. And I think the places that will suffer and particularly I look at London, I look at the UK, we've seen this explosion of specialty coffee, this explosion of specialty cafes over the last five years. Lots of people have seen it as, is a great thing to be passionate about, a great thing to work in, but also a great business opportunity. And so there've been lots of cafes that all kind of look the same, that all do a pretty good job. Um, the ones that aren't super unique are the ones that are gonna fail. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree, Dale, and I, I harp on about this a lot in the podcast, so I better not do it too much more. Although I'm, I'm very glad you added your contribution, but I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm going to direct us back to a bit of you now, yeah, Dale. Okay. The World Brewster Championship. You competed in the World Brewster Championship. Well, you won it. Um, spoiler alert, Dale won it. Um, <laughs> that was back in 2017 in Seoul. You competed against the likes of Kyle Ramage, Ben Put, Mickey Suzuki, Capucho, and Australia's own Hugh Kelly. Um, mm-hmm. Firstly, what was the preparation like for such a thing? Obviously, we get, we're starting to... I think every everyone now listening would 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 be aware that obviously you're very passionate about food, coffee, science, and these sorts of things. What's the preparation like for a barista competition? Were you spending extended amounts of time away from home, or you know? Yeah, I, I mean, yes and no, and like it's always. I am a very lucky person. Like I find a job with a company that really resonated with me that the the founder kind of agreed with most of the things that I agree with, or we enjoy arguing about the things we disagree. Would this be about. Steve Layton? Steve, yeah. I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna have months. to quickly interject here, but I love Steve Layton and um, Steve Layton. I, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, but um, he's one of my favorite yeah. coffee professionals ever. And I, I, I watch um, quite, quite um, I'm very, I'm very on top of in my mug. Um, which yeah. is uh, Dale's, uh, <laughs> sorry, Stephen's little thing. And he used to have this quote where he says, schnozzer in a bowl. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I may have spent up to an hour looking at YouTube clips just to sort of cut this sound, which you won't be able to hear, but it is for anyone listening at home. Schnozzer in the bowl. Now that was Stephen saying schnozzer in a bowl. And it's just, I don't know, it's just one of my favorite things. But yes, go on, Steve. I'm going to say Steve is Vegemite. He is, uh, some people love his approach and his attitude to coffee. Some people actually, no, some people love and adore him and the way he presents himself and presents coffee. Some people dislike it and avoid it, but almost everybody respects how he thinks about coffee and what he knows about coffee. Well, he lives my dream. Um, Traveling yeah, the world, finding it. He's also, you know, a nightmare to work with. Never, never get that close to your heroes because he's a grumpy shit. He's a, <laughs> his, his persona online is so much more friendly than the reality. <laughs> An angry little ginger man from England. Yeah. He's, um, <laughs> what he is, uh, in every way, is 100% authentic. Like, that's a guy who will always tell you what he thinks and what he feels. And for me, that's, that's the kind of 
you know, however they present it, that's the kind of person I want to be around is someone who I know what they think, what they want, who's willing to have a good conversation about it. That's great. And so this was obviously uh, a good pairing for WBC prep then? Yeah, for sure. Um, except, you know, Steve was kind of over it. Steve thought, I think Steve was, he was really supportive of me throughout all my competitions, but I think he was a bit bored and a bit jaded by the thing. It was like, I know this is important to you, but I'm not going to get too emotionally invested in this because you're going to crash and burn again, as you always do. Uh, <laughs> and Steve is a lot more competitive than I am. I don't really, uh, I don't regard myself as a competitive person. Um, I'm competitive against myself. I want to improve. I want to get better. And a lot of barista competition is like a, a solo game, a mental internal game. Because you're not, like, you cannot impact what the other people do. You can't impact their score sheets. You don't know what their coffee tastes like. You can do the best thing that's possible for you, and somebody else may bring a better coffee or present it better on the day. So the only thing you can control is your performance and your results. Uh, did you achieve what you wanted to achieve? Did you make any mistakes? Or did you cover up your mistakes well enough, which is a lot of it? Um, so I'm really lucky. I have this great job and a lot of trust and support and it's pretty close to where I live and I'm not working in a cafe. So I'm not coming off the back of a 14 hour shift <sighs> after getting up at five to put out the tables and then having to start preparing. See, that's what I had uh, to do when I, the, the one season I competed, I, I lived that life and it was a bit hair gown. If you don't like, you have to do that at, at least the first time I competed, I did that. And if you can't do that, you shouldn't compete. Like, you have to want it enough to jump through some of the really painful hurdles and they're painful um, because otherwise it's not worth it. Like the value, hello. Um, my staff, uh, because, because of the, the way everything is working right now, we're not in every day. So we have three or four of us in the office upstairs and I've just seen one of my favorite staff members. She's in today. Oh. So we'll have some, it'll be great. Excellent. Maybe she um, can have a, have a tea and a biscuit soon. Oh, hello. Amy loves a tea and a biscuit. Well, she, well, Amy's featuring on the Sub-Zero Coffee Podcast all the way down in Australia. But um, back, to, back to preparing for the World yeah. Bristol okay. Championship. So in terms of preparation, I, uh, I competed lots of years running. Uh, and each year it had taken like a different kind of direction or process around time. But it does mean that I wasn't starting from zero when I started getting ready for my nationals and that year, because the nationals were held late and the world was being held late, effectively I started getting ready for the nationals in uh, maybe May, June and competed in August, I think. And then the worlds were in November. So maybe I spent 12 weeks preparing for the nationals that year, which is a pretty good average to what I've done in the past. No, like the low end of what I've done before. And for the Worlds, there was 10 weeks from when I complete, completed my nationals to when I did the Worlds. And I chose to do something completely different. So worked I out really for you. Say what? It worked out for you. Yeah, and I, I have lots of theories as to why, but I think... I think one of them is not spending too much time. So there are a, like a really good example and you know, almost every national champion next year is gonna face this, uh, but 
traditionally the champion from China wins their nationals in, I don't know, May 2016, and then they compete in the Worlds in something like August 2017. It is often a year or even two years from when they have their national win to when they competed the Worlds because the country's so big, the process is so slow, they're always going through regional heats and stuff like that. So they have like 12 months to prepare, maybe 18 months to prepare. And in my opinion, and it's just an opinion, it's too much. It's too difficult to, to maintain the focus through that long period. You can't work with the coffee that you just came up your nationals with because by that point it's going to be old and different unless you have a secret recipe or technique to, or you to change it. it. Yeah, exactly. Um, which I think John's not competing now, but he was freezing his coffee for, for the New Zealand nationals. It's like, well, this is pretty cool to be able to stretch that window out for a couple of years. It's funny you should mention that. I've, he, I, I have some of it in my in my kitchen um, that I've made, and it's delicious. He would have gone very well had he yeah. used it, had he competed. But um, yeah, he's it, it, it. So it's almost like a disadvantage having all that time. And so, do you think sort of the brevity or the how brief of a time frame you had to prepare for the worlds almost sort of gave you the stamina? So you're coming off your win. You're probably feeling feeling very confident. Then you had that time, that condensed time period to sort of prepare for the worlds. Was that? I think, I think it does two things. One, or probably three things. One, it gives you like, uh, there is a limit to the time, which means that you have to make decisions full stop. Like, so most people, and we've all done this, like if you've got an idea for competition, uh, Actually, the hardest part once you've competed once, because the first time you compete, you can say, you know, I'm, I'm Dale. This is what I, I love coffee. I'm excited. Here's my thing. The next year, you have to think a little bit more and you're like, what else can I say about me? What else do I care about? And as the years go on, it gets harder and harder to think about what am I going to talk about this year? What is my big idea? What am I going to build this routine around? And you need something. And the reality is it doesn't matter what it is. The judges don't care. They're not scoring the, the accuracy of your bold statements or whether it's important or valid. They're scoring whether the coffee you serve them tastes as good as you're describing uh, and whether the service was a good experience. Uh, I think it really matters that the idea, that you believe in the idea, that you want to share it, that you're excited about it, because if you don't believe in it, they'll recognize that. And that will come across in the scores. Like, oh, you were copying someone else. You were faking it. You didn't believe this. The coffee just didn't taste. I just didn't feel your passion kind of thing. So you have to believe it. The judges don't care. Um, The hardest thing is picking. Maybe you've got 50 kind of vague ideas and none of them are quite good enough. The only way any idea becomes good enough is you decide it and you put the work in, right? And over time, as you put the work in, it might change and become something completely different. That's also super cool. You have to make that decision for everything. You have to decide your idea. You have to decide the coffee you choose to use, how you're going to brew it, the roast level, all of those things. If you don't make those really big decisions, you can't progress because you're lost in this kind of cloud that it could go this way, it could go that way. The longer you're in that kind of muddy space, the less time you have to polish off what you're going to present. 
So if the time frame is really short, you have no choice. The coffee can't be something that's in a container on its way to you because it might not arrive in time. You need to have that roast profile dialed in at least like eight weeks before the competition because you need four weeks to be working on your espresso recipe or flavor notes or whatever. So to be able to do that, you have to decide on your green, decide on your roast, you're locked in, you can't change it. And that removes uncertainty and you're left with, there's just one way forward, right? Well, and it might be wrong. Yeah, it's well, one way. it's very interesting that you, that the way you exp- explain that and it sort of challenge it, it sort of uh, is a bit of, it juxtaposes my opinion of you and your routine before I sort of came on and spoke to you about it because the complexity of your routine is quite extraordinary using the, the scientific term, and I wrote it down here, gas chromatography mass spectrometry. And that might be, you know, someone listening to this might hear that. And be like, what do you just say? Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it's a, very, it's a very complicated idea. And before we sort of unpack it, Dale, I've got a little sound bite that I'm, I'm sorry, you won't be able to hear, but the listeners will. And it's the opening uh, two or three sentences of your routine. So give me one second. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play that. Throughout my time in coffee, I have been obsessed about one thing. The connection between the flavors we experience in the cup and the actions that shape them at origin. But in most coffee experiences, that connection's broken. We give information about varieties and altitudes, farm names, but without context, it's just noise. And repeated often enough, it's a noise that risks commodifying the experience of specialty. All right, so the actions that... um Happen at origin. Oh, I can't remember the opening line now. I fully was like, I'm going to remember this. Um, the flavors we experience in the cup and the actions that shape them at origin. Yeah. Um, obviously, quite a um, quite an interesting routine for someone like me because, like we said, you know, I charge up to thirty Australian dollars for a cup of coffee, and you know, when you're drinking something like that, as beautiful and as exquisite as it is, you you wonder how did this coffee cup of coffee become so tasty. And using this this term GCMS, which stands for again gas chromatography mass spectrometry, um, you're able to sort of forensically determine this is this is a this is a scientific technique that's used to sort of you know do drug tests and used by forensic scientists and sort of those sorts of things. And you applied it to coffee, so you you had this brilliant lot from El Salvador from Ernesto Menendez uh, in my best Steve Leighton accent, and you've sort of um, Work backwards with this university. You know, you've obsessed the flavors, the ro- the degree of roasting. You know, the pairing of it with milk and yada 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 yada. And you sort of determine what it was about that coffee that gave it these flavors. And you know, even to the the temperature, the shade of the trees, and they they brought up different compounds. I'm surprised you were able to do that in sort of ten weeks. So it's amazing what you can do when you ask for help and you work really hard for a little while. Like the other benefit of the short time period is you said about stamina is like you can't, and you, you asked about how, how I was working at the time of like how I was preparing. And the reality is you can work really hard and do really weird things for an amount of time. You can't do it forever, but like 12 weeks, you can pretty much do like, if right now is teaching us anything, you can do anything for a period. And there are highs and lows, um, was doing really long days and was dragging some of my favorite people along 
for the ride with me the whole way and expecting the same of them. Uh, but it does mean that along with having to make fast decisions and doing lots of work really quickly, you ask someone for help. If they can help you, you grab hold of it. You do as much work as you can to make the most of that little tool that you've been given or that little resource you've been given really mine it deep, make some kind of bold assertions and move forward. With it. Um, the idea was kind of in my head, had been in my head for years and actually, so the connection to the university came, I don't know, three, four years before I'd done some work, uh, the fat duck shut down in the UK and moved to Sydney, I think. Maybe Melbourne, I can't remember. I think it was Melbourne. Uh, yeah. So they, they opened up for six months, nine months while they refilled the kitchen. And while they were doing that, they started using a new coffee program and they wanted to bring coffee back when they reopened the restaurant. So they asked my company and some other companies and were kind of exploring coffee for a few months around that. And through that process, I met one of their guys who I don't think is with them anymore, but uh, was effectively their head of technical for R&D. Uh, really smart guy, was, uh, had done a lot of work behind the like, liquid nitrogen ice cream and gelling agents and things like that. Um, I worked with him for a while on refractometers and understanding just extraction on coffee. And we had some really good chats, done some work there. And I had this idea from from something I read about what they've done with crisps, about the flavor of crisps and using technology to kind of pick apart what makes a crisp good or bad or interesting, why do we love it? Um, and so I asked him, you know, do you know anyone? And they were like, well, we work with these guys here. And so I kind of, I asked him for a favor. He introduced me to someone else who I asked for a favor. He asked one of his PhD students if she wouldn't mind helping me. And I got a day booked in, like everyone said yes, everyone was willing to like play along. Uh, and so I got a day on a machine in three, four weeks time, which again meant that in the next three, four weeks, I have to decide on the coffee, the roast, how we're gonna structure this experiment. Um, the actual, and I don't like saying science because like the reality of good science is it's like, at its core, it's like a theory about controlled variables and making good decisions based on provable facts kind of thing. We test one thing, we measure the result, is the result statistically valid? We come to a conclusion, it's a really slow, really slow, really low, <laughs> oh my God, really slow, long process um, to come to a really limited conclusion, which is why a lot of, and I like reading academic papers and stuff like that. I always find them, you know, I, I have a few kind of search functions. So normally every day, two or three papers on either like, uh, at the moment it's agroforestry and some food chemistry comes up in my email. And if I'm, if I have the time or if I'm having a good day, I read through them. If not, you know, maybe it's only if they're really interesting to me, but whenever you read those things, if you really question it or if you're really critical, you're like, these are the 10 holes in this experiment. This is why, yes, it's a really interesting conclusion, but this is why it doesn't stack up. Uh, or this is where more work needs to be done. 
And whenever any real science happens, what you learn at the end of it is, if I have more people, more money, and more resources, I could really do this experiment well. That's about it. Um, so everything that I did was, it wasn't really science. It was using analytical tools that are used in science or chemistry or whatever to try out an idea and come up with a possibility that could be researched in more depth. The problem, the same that we were talking about with cafes is because I was really focused on one very unique lot with lots of unique factors, I could build a really, a really powerful narrative, a really powerful story or experiment around this one coffee, but how much of it is transferable to another coffee because of all the minute differences is really hard to say. And for us to really, really take broad truths from that, you'd probably need to dial back a few levels and wait a few years and go through, okay, well, probably only test green coffee and look for the precursors rather than the actual flavor notes. Would that be and because you're adding so many more variables when you're roasting yeah, it? roasting and whatever. And so, and there are ways we can standardize this. And I've done similar kind of experiments afterwards, again, with, with Gloria and, and the guys that were, were in Nottingham at the time. We did some other experiments with Kenyan coffee to come up with a different, uh, yeah, for a different project. And then instead of using effectively a commercial roast, we did roast in the Akawa, not because it's a better roast, but because it's a very repeatable, controllable roast that we could theoretically replicate more easily. And for the brewed coffee that we were testing, we did filter because filter has slightly less variables or slightly more, more controllable reference points, I guess, than espresso. Um, anyway, so what I did for 12 weeks was I got up really early. I drove to the office, I think, Monday through Friday, I was working at the office from 7 a.m. till 2. So I just shifted my day's work. And there were a few things that some of my team and some of my staff took off my shoulders for 12 weeks, and they were willing to suck it up a bit and to help support me. Um, so I did that Monday through Friday. And at 2 o'clock, I would switch over and then spend another four or five hours, depending on the day, focusing on competition. It might be that those five, six hours were focused on one really specific element. So it could have been focused on analyzing the research that we've done at the lab or cupping and working through a few rose profiles of the coffee or doing just milk drinks and spending five hours just really trying to work on my milk drink to be consistent in what I was trying to achieve. Um, but put dedicated time in each of those days to furthering our goals. Uh, Saturday was my day off. I would hang with my kids and not think about, actually, I would spend Saturday not formally doing anything about competition, but because I was so much in that zone, I'd probably be practicing my words or thinking thoughts about the work that we just done. And then Sunday, we would do a mega day where get in the office at like eight or nine, work through till eight or nine. And all of these days, only eating food at the roastery, which we're a long way away, we're in a industrial area like away from the city so like cooking food the night before pretty consistent boring food because it was fuel right mm. it, it wasn't a diet plan to improve my palate it was very much like what can we warm up in a 
dirty roastery and eat lots of without getting too bored of. So it's like porridge every morning, having a planning meeting at the same time every day uh, into a real like routine and rhythm of how the day is going so that I was really focused. And every week on a Monday morning, uh, Pete, who was my coach, was my best friend, uh, he came and stayed with me throughout all of that time, all those 12 weeks. Um, it was really good for, I'd say, 10 of them. There was a couple days where he almost killed me. I almost killed him, partly because of the diet, partly because of just spending so much time together, and partly because when you're going through that process, you're putting a lot of pressure on each other to make those decisions. So there was definitely a day where we were trying to like go from, we had all the research, all the flavors, all the kind of ideas that we wanted to talk about. The one thing we needed was the signature drink. And we were like, we have to decide everything about the signature drink this week. You know, there's no choice. If we don't get it finalized, we're not going to, to so we won't have it ready. Um, and because Pete has a, uh, a culinary history has worked with a lot of food, a lot of techniques, has worked on a lot of sick drinks for other smart people. He, uh, he felt that a lot of the pressure was on him and it totally was. And cool. any of the success I got was totally to him as well, but I get to, you know, steal all the glory. But he, there was definitely a day where he felt all the pressure was on him. I felt all the pressure should be on him. And it took us a whole day of kind of bitching each other, shining at each other, upsetting each other to realize, oh, yeah, this is just like part of the cycle. This is part of what has to happen. Well, it was, it's interesting you bring up Pete because I've met Pete. Um, he, yeah, yeah. When I was working at St. Ali, he came in one day and I don't know how the conversation got started. And I said, I asked him what he did for work and he just goes, well, I'm actually in the industry. I'm here coaching someone from Owner Coffee for the the Australian Barista Competition. I said, "Oh, okay. I'm I'm competing in that. Who 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 are you coaching?" And he goes, um, "Hugh Kelly." And you know, Hugh Hugh Kelly's a very talented barista in his own mm-hmm. right. And um, yeah, then and we we got to talking, and it was a very informative chat I had with Pete. And then you know, showed him around the the office, and you know, uh, went and um, he said, "Oh, is Matt Perger there?" And then you know, went we went and united those two and which which was funny and yeah it's it's, it's interesting the way i met pete and he, he seems like a very switched on guy because obviously you know he helped get you the uh the cheddar so to speak he's uh well no, like he's a genius he's super smart uh he's also like and we talk about you know those really 12 really intense 12 weeks that's almost what he spent his whole life doing is working. Like he does projects, he coaches people, he does whatever. And he just, he always brings the energy, which is the hardest thing for any of these things. It's like, it's easy the first day. It's really hard week six, week seven. If that's opening a new cafe, if that's doing a, you know, a business proposal or a competition, anything where there is a definite endpoint and you have to push yourself beyond what you think is, is possible uh he has the energy to drive that through so you know not just on competition i've worked with him on loads of things and he's that's just who he is well it's um uh, one one thing i wanted to ask you dale with with this with this idea that you came up with and the product and and well obviously the end result that it gave you where do you think 
the concept behind your r- routine, which is sort of the gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, and tracing back all of those aspects and compounds of your coffee. So, you know, you, you mentioned furfural or whatever in your routine that sort of, you know, translates to a certain flavor in a coffee. Where do you think that could apply in the future to a coffee, like cafe service? I mean, I think a lot of these things with, that you do in barista competitions, you, you do with the hope that people would sort of implement it in their daily work lives or, you know, with the hope that it would it's it's picked up and developed a bit more down the track. Do you see, where, where do you see the future of, you know, we, we've spoken a bit about a, a, post, uh, a post-COVID world, um, you know, where do you see that element, if you like, implemented yeah. in coffee? And, you know, to, to give you a, a, a bit more of a framework to work within here, you know, with something like what I do, you know, vintaging coffee and, and you know, that's going to, I think that's already becoming a much bigger thing all around the world. Um, where do you see that fitting in? So I think there is a, there is a, a timeline or a curve to, to highlight new ideas become embedded in things and sometimes it's faster and sometimes it's slower competition is very visible right you know regardless of how big the audience is it's a really well targeted audience so all the people who are sitting through 50 barista performances they're really into it so they're probably running some of the best cafes or training programs or you know really focused and passionate about coffee the champions are not really the engines of change they are like the spark but the audience the people that choose to watch those things be it live or be it over the next like three six months whatever that year um they are the people who make change in the industry right they're 50 cafes 50 countries 100 cafes i don't know some of those ideas seep through and some of them go on to do other things so normally what you see is something that feels new and nothing's really new, but something that feels new in a barista competition one year, the next year you'll probably see 10, maybe 50 people in their national competitions or in their cafes if they're not competing, playing around with that idea, exploring it a bit further, talking to other people about it. So it begins to get a bit of traction and then it slowly tips into the mainstream. Um, You definitely see that with things like, the OCD and the EK, right? It was shown on that stage in a certain way. And between the next six months and two years, it almost became normal. This, uh, this kind of element that I was talking about, I think one part of it is very transferable and easy in cafes, which is ignoring the GCMS or ignoring the detail of the work that I did, just thinking about coffee and presenting it in a slightly different way. Um, maybe being a little more analytical about where the flavors come from or how we're talking about the, the correspondences between what the customer's tasting and what you're brewing. I think that's very easily transferable and people are, we're already doing that and are probably doing that in more and different ways right now. I think the, the chemistry part of it probably has more impact elsewhere, particularly with things like understanding, understanding what quality is we, so it's really easy for a roaster coffee buyer to cup coffee and go, this is quality. It's really hard for them to describe to a producer what it was they did that meant that they were going to be paid twice as much for their green. 
you know, they can say, oh, it just tastes amazing. It's cleaner. It's whatever. And actually maybe 50% of the difference is easy to explain because it's about quality control and removing problems in processing or problems in uh, picking whatever, um, which is why normally if you find good coffee from a producer, it's very likely they can produce high quality the next year as well because it's about removing the problems rather than adding specific values, specific new things. The other 50%, what was the chemistry of the soil? What was the temperature? What shade trees are you growing? At what level of you know maturation do you pick or your cherries, how you separate them? All those things are like super tied to guesswork. Maybe there's empirical observations. So a farmer might produce a lot, separate it in a certain way, send it to auction or sells it to their coffee buyer and their coffee buyer really loves it and pays more money for it, whatever. So it achieves more value. So the coffee producer goes, ah, if I pick that way again, quality will follow. And there's definitely truth to that, but it's really, really hard for another coffee producer, maybe in the same state, the same like region of Colombia, whatever, to then go, oh, well, uh, Pedro did this, so Manuel should do this. Mm. You know, those those lessons rarely carry over. And I guess that's one of the is uh, frustrating as that must sound to some people. It's one of the beautiful things about coffee as well, because you get presented year on year for, from say, for example, you're trying different coffee, or you're trying the same coffee from different harvests every year from the same farm for ten years. You're going to get wildly different results in on some occasions. Um, and it could be due to anything like you know weather, shade, like we spoke about before, cherry maturation, um, the the co- the the composition of the soil. There's just so many different things, and um, this is what sort of inter- interests me so much about the GCMS. And you know, though it might not be perfect to apply that that system to sort of every coffee, like the more information that we can find out um, and transfer and communicate to people is fascinating it's only going to make the barista profession so much better which i guess also um you know the challenge in that is sort of being um making that consumable for people and giving them the value in sort of okay well i'm paying you to explain all these things to me it sort of it needs to be explained and and prepared to sort of meet that value for going back again to me charging 30 dollars for a cup of coffee you know what i mean i i believe that this technique and others like it, there are huge opportunities in lots of different segments of the industry. The access to the equipment is the hardest part and the one that creates the most limitation. Like, and actually it's not the equipment that's the problem, it's the understanding of how to use it. Mm. You know, there's no way I could have done what I did without one, uh, Gloria, who, who did the research, uh, who now works for... Uh, I might get this wrong. She she works for a large company working on chocolate, and she's she's basically doing this work for one of the major kind of transnational, multinational companies that sell bars of chocolate, right? Uh, and she's doing exactly this kind of work. And one of the things we we overlook in kind of specialty coffee is some of the bigger coffee companies, the the nasty, like we like to regard them as nasty because. They're very commercial, they're very big companies, but they have huge R&D departments. And some of this work they've been doing for years. Uh, Illy is not really in that kind of bracket so much, but 
everyone is very aware of the scientific work that Eddie have done for 40 years, and they've been very open to sharing a lot of it. Nestle are the same, and uh, JDE, and all these huge big companies have labs and an understanding of coffee that is not public, um, but influences the industry and influences farmers. Um, and probably, uh, I hate to say it, but Nespresso as a product, as a program, because it uses more expensive coffee uh, and is very consistent in the way it brews and achieves a lot of value per pod, all of that creates a really good opportunity for those companies to actually make a big difference to specialty coffee. Mm. Because they have the research, they have the knowledge, but they also now have an access to a market of customers who want better coffee, which they didn't really used to have before. Um, the specialty industry, uh, however we define that, but if I say lots and lots and lots of small and medium-sized roasters who care about quality, together we have lots of power to create change, but individually we don't. You know, Steve can buy great coffee from a great farmer and it can make that farmer's life better, but it doesn't really change the industry. In the same way, you can do something in your cafe that's really incredible and it can change your customers' lives or experience, but it's only when, it be, it's only when some of that goes mainstream and almost all of the specialty coffee companies agree, it's only at that point that we can have a similar impact to a big company like Nestle or Illy or whatever. Um, but what we do have is shared resources in things like SEA and like World Coffee Research where tools like this do become accessible, where they can borrow knowledge and resources from science, but also from baristas, from all those things and pull them together and create a change that we all kind of support. Um, so I think using, I think those organizations or any organization that brings the disparate kind of competitive forces together to make a change probably has the most use or the most ability to drive forward some of this. Does that make sense? I got really complicated, really fast. No, no, of course. I mean, there's there's a whole lot. I mean, GCMS is one tool, and you know, I I don't think I'll ever I'll I'll go to a cafe in the next five years and see it implemented on you know sort of every single coffee. It's a very complex idea, but I think it something okay. like that does have the capacity. That, but in the in the beer and wine industry, for a certain for a certain size of craft beer or a certain size of quality wine. And definitely you go to a wine producing place in Australia where similar to like, so rightly or wrongly or whether the wine quality is better or, or good or, or not, or where it ranks against France, whatever, your average successful winemaker in Australia is a lot more technology led than your average wine producer in France. Uh, and certainly than your average wine producer in parts of like Argentina and Chile and whatever. And it's the equivalent of a lot of your Australian wine producers will be a lot like your coffee producers in Panama, where they have access to resources, money, knowledge, uh, all those things. So they can really push the boundaries of how to think about it. GCMS is not a weird thing to be conducted in wine production or beer production particularly if they are at a level where consistency really matters and control really matters. It's very different to the idea of kind of craft wine or craft beer, small scale kind of thing, but it does mean that they can make product that customers like every time. 
And because the food industry has begun using this as a tool over the last 20 years, the cost of the units and the cost of acquiring the knowledge or people with the knowledge has shrunk over 20 years. So in the 70s, technology like this, it's like computers, right? It would have been a massive box, probably a room with lots of fans around it with five really smart people doing literally like maths on paper. And now it's an Excel spreadsheet tied to a computer, tied to a small box that probably costs only like 10 grand, 20 grand, right? In 10 years time, if more and more food businesses are buying into this technology, the cost will only get smaller. China will make smaller, more capable, easier to use ones. And there's a reality that maybe in 20 years, this will be a normal thing in a certain size grocery, certainly a more commercial one. It might even be just for, for other reasons, like for food safety or to match changing standards and like what supermarkets will stock and things like that. Um, yeah, things that seem otherworldly or really complicated now will become the norm very, very quickly. Well, we are progressing so quickly in, in coffee and, you know, what was new five years ago, as you sort of said, is now normal. And, um, you know, the, the advancement, you know, the, the pace of advancement seems to be increasing all the time as well. So, you know, you're sort of getting 15 years of sort of progression in five years sort of thing. And, you know, everything's improving so rapidly, which is one, which is one of the great things. And I think we've got, there's a lot of doom and gloom and, and, you know, a lot of reasons to be unhappy for some people at the moment, but, um, as we've sort of discussed, Al, I, I, I block all of that out and I just focus on, you know, focus on the cool stuff, focus on coffee, you know, keep, keep, you got to keep it, keep it cool. That's one of our, one of our sayings, Dale, is stay cool. <laughs> wouldn't it be ever, wouldn't it be fantastic if everyone just drank a little more good coffee? I, I, like, for example, Donald Trump, I don't think he'd be so mad if he, you know, if he had had some sort of uh, Finca Las Brumas SL28 yeah. Dale Harris 2017 vintage. Do you think he'd be so grumpy? Like, you know, Kim Jong-un, he could probably do with a Panamanian geisha filter. I think it'd change, it'd change his perspective on a few things. Like, people just need to try these things. I, I admire your confidence in the power of coffee. <laughs> oh, well, Dale, I, you know, a lot of these people, are, you know, they're drinking Kool-Aid. They need, to, they, need to switch, they need to switch a little bit, you know. They need to mm-hmm. broaden their horizons. And I think, um, you know, obviously I do have, you know, a very um, – I, I do have a very big belief in coffee and, you know, I think if more people were drinking, you know, one of the great things about coffee and particularly what I do is like just so many people don't know about it, which means there's, there's so many people for me to go and discover and so many people yeah, that can like be. There's this huge market and if you can have, so I think one of the, one of the problems with like the high volume takeaway cafe um, and it's not about quality because you know, I've been to stores pumping out I don't know, 30 kilos worth of cappuccinos a day or 30 kilos worth of like, espresso going into cappuccinos a day, banging out those milk drinks. Really high quality is possible. Really good conversations is not. You know, if you're a factory line pumping out really high quality, you're probably serving people who've either already bought into the idea or who are buying it for other reasons because they like the cafe, they like the location, they like the whatever. All of those things are fine and good, but they don't really help change people's minds. And there's such there's this huge group of customers that we do need to really gently, because I 
I think we lose as many customers as we gain when we do it badly. If you can gently introduce people to, I know you like coffee. Uh, I know you like what you've had, but here's something a bit different. What do you think? You know, it's really easy to impress people. It's really easy to give them something better than they've ever had before, particularly with uh, filter coffee because it's done so badly so often. And I actually think it is easy to make better filter coffee than anybody else has ever made. Like it's so easy to make it better if you do it a little more carefully and if you taste what you're serving before you give it to someone. I don't care whether it comes from a batch brew, which gives you lots of benefits or a pour over, which gives you different benefits uh, in terms of how it looks, how it's presented, how it extracts. You can make amazing coffee on both of them, but you can also make really bad coffee really quickly on both of them. If you don't taste coffee from the batch brew and you serve it to 20 people, even if it's like coming off the refractometer the same as it did before. And if you're not 100% confident that that's good, and if you're not serving it in a way that protects its quality, people are just gonna drink and go, it's just coffee. Like really high quality specialty coffee, if it's not presented well, if it's not given the right context around it, people drink it too fast, they add milk, they add sugar, they do whatever, and it's just like another coffee. It might be like good coffee, but it just being a bit better isn't enough for them to pay double pay 10 times as much. And that's really what we need, right? That's the kind of change we need to create is we need a bigger market of customers. And if we doubled the amount of people buying specialty coffee, that's a lot of jobs. That's a lot of income. It's a lot of value that can be captured. And it's really like we're talking 2% of the coffee market, something like that. If we double it to four. Well, well, Dale, the, it's um, having this conversation really sort of Makes me want to explain to you. I'm, I'm I'm entered into the draw tonight to win the ten million dollars, the 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 Oz Lotto ten million dollar draw, right. and so I'm I'm very with that money. What I'm going to do with it because I am going to win tonight um, yeah. is I'm going to build a cafe where all the walls there are no walls. The walls are freezers, and they're just full of full of vials of coffee. Like you know, in this yeah. cafe, there's not going to be fifty coffee. There's going to be five hundred. And um, in and I envision, you know, all the staff wearing lab coats. They're just absolute dons of what they do. And someone can yeah. come in and just say and and decide, I want to drink, I want to drink one of these one of these coffees. And you know, whether I win tonight or not doesn't matter. This is happening one day, Dale. And you know, by the time you come yeah. to Australia as well, um, and people are going to be able to to choose and you know at sub zero we don't discriminate you can get a filter a milk based coffee or a, or a, or an espresso and they're all pretty much just as high quality as each other in their own right um, yeah. that's what i envision well that, that that's what i'm hoping to create in the near future i really hope i get there i mean no sorry i will get there but it's going to take I, some time dale i believe in you i so i do have some like concerns around the market or the business if everyone does something like that so like if everybody starts freezing coffee and everybody has 50 100 coffees on their offer list that are frozen um we will gain lots of the problems that the wine industry has and because we're coffee and we've got a chip on our shoulder we always look at wine and go well at least life's better for them we should be more like them but there's lots of downsides um that will come from that but for there to be one place or you know, one place in each continent that thinks and does that. And then another place in 
you know, another city in the same continent that has a completely different approach to what quality is and is driving it forward with, you know, literally there's no point in doing it 10%, right? Oh. It's 100% and you have to believe in it, you have to build it and make it. And the market will decide which bits of that keep going over the five years, 10 years that it's open and it'll change over time and that's good. Well, if it's yeah. going to work anywhere, I would, ho- I would like to think it's Melbourne. It's a pretty progressive yeah. city and, um, and you know, people are looking for this kind of thing. They think, oh, geez, that guy's doing some weird stuff. Like, I love people doing weird stuff as well. Like, I will go out of my way to go, to go into a pastry shop or go into a place that makes weird pork pies, sausage rolls, whatever, and is doing something differently because weirdness is part of the context, right? Weirdness is, like, they're doing something different. Is it good? Is it not? Let me go and try it. I am happy to pay for it for that experience, even if I end up not liking it or thinking it could be done differently because I get this joy of experiencing something new. Um, and I think that's where you get this kind of food tourism and this, this real value is all those people who are coming for the first time, whether they love it, whether they hate it, if they're talking about it, other people will be interested. Um, and you know, if I, if I was to open a bar tomorrow, I wouldn't do what you're planning to do. Um, but I would be equally like full on do something weird. People will hate it. People will disagree, but maybe they'll want to come once. And if they want to come once, maybe I can do something that's good enough to make them maybe not come back to me again, but go somewhere like yours. You know, that's. Well, perpetuates the whole thing. And Dale, I could stay and talk to you about this all day, but we're, we're, you know, we've been going for an hour and a half now and I've got to let you go to work. I mean, you're on the, hopefully hopefully you're on the clock. But what's that? Sorry. You're going to get some sleep. Oh, it's 6.38 here. I'll probably go play some games of NBA 2K and a bit of Call of Duty before bed and uh, got some pumpkin soup for dinner tonight. Um, but one one guess, uh, one question rather, I try and ask most of the um, guests uh, on this on this podcast is, what's the best coffee you've ever had? And, you know, that's a that's a very that's a very tough question to ask. So you know, I, I usually give leniency of rattle rattle sure. us off two or three. This is a coffee nerds podcast, really at heart. I mean, we try and make it as inviting for everyone as possible. But I'm, hit me. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to give you one. Uh, no, I'll give you two, uh, but I will like, I guess, caveat it with what was the best experience or the best moment of drinking coffee when I was drinking it. Maybe if I went back and drank it again now, my opinion would change, right? We keep drinking more and more interesting things. And what is, what is interesting to me today might have blown my world five years ago. Mm. You know, but you really quickly become normalized. You're surrounded by loads of amazing coffee in, in that, uh, in your apartment. And every coffee you have this week is going to be amazing. And you're going to forget how amazing some of it is because it becomes normal. It's just a cup of coffee. It's just what you're drinking while you're working. On a side note, uh, it, it never gets old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when I had my, my job interview which is a glorious way of describing what actually happened uh i came out to the roll street from i don't know it was a two-hour drive i was late i got there after everyone had left steve was waiting for me kind of thing we had this kind of casual chat and think about different things and stuff like that and he gave me a bag of coffee that i took home with me i was already a customer 
uh, of his. So I was already buying, like, uh, so already subscribing to it in my mug. I already had a Chemex, but I bought a, uh, he gave me a bag of fresh harvest coffee from, uh, from Ernesto from Finca Alaska. And it was, I remember brewing it at home the next week. And it was just like, I, I have no choice. I have to work here because this is the best coffee I've ever had. And it wasn't the best because it was the fanciest. You know, I'd, I'd bought, uh, actually from Steve, I know a few months before, I'd bought Esmeralda Geishas from him. They were incredible and, you know, definitely opened my eyes to what flavor could be and, uh, or what flavors coffee could give us. But this had elements of that, but also elements of balance and huge depth. It had flavors of natural, but it was a wash coffee because of how he was leaving cherries on the tree. And it was just, regardless of whether that was the best coffee in the world or not, it was a really impressive, immersive experience for me. And it's like, I want to work with coffees like this every day. I don't want to work. I don't want to taste these sometimes when I treat myself to something fancy in a cafe and then go back to work and sell stuff that's good enough. Like I was working for a company that sold pretty good coffee and some pretty average coffee to lots of people, but it was just business and the coffee was just fine. And there was this opportunity to work with coffee that was amazing flavors, well-sourced, full story so I could learn things and understand it. It was like a no-brainer. The other one would be actually from from a couple of years before that and from, you know, we're pretty friendly, but like one of the biggest brands that we compete with and kind of the specialty thing in the UK is Square Mile. But I have loved so much of what they've done in the past and now, but I really remember uh, Santa Rita Natural, which I can't even remember which country it was from, but it was just probably one of the best mugs of filtered coffee I'd had at that point. And I was drinking it and I just remember that moment of, I guess, picking up a cup of coffee you've been drinking and enjoying and take, taking another sip and just realizing it was a completely different thing now than it was five minutes before. Mm. And it was equally incredible, but in a completely different way. And I think that was a, a natural coffee. It's just a really, a really one that presented flavors of really kind of ripe fruit rather than bruised fruit. Um, and I just, I remember it being a real surprise and a real like that little rush of joy you get when something is really good. Just that, you know, and you go, you go to an amazing restaurant and they bring out like amuse-bouches or starters. It's one of those like tasting menus where there's 10 courses and you're being constantly given new fun things that are so exciting that you forget that two minutes ago, you also had something equally fun and equally exciting. And by the end of it, you're just like, can't really remember any of the detail. You're just in a, in a high and happy place. And coffee can give that to us. And when you get that, it's amazing. Yeah. You're absolutely that, that's probably what I want to share the most or what, what I want to see shared the most. I don't even care if the coffee is the best coffee that's ever happened. I want to see baristas who are that excited about what they are offering their customers. You know, I don't, I don't care whether it's what I like. I care very much that somebody values this thing enough to want to share it with me. And at that point, I'm not really paying for coffee. I'm paying for that experience of being 
I also don't like to say served, that experience of being delighted by someone or sharing in their enthusiasm or their passion or their, you know, and that transcends coffee as well. Like I am not into, what can I make up? I'm not into skateboards, but to hear someone who is super passionate about skateboards talking about why they love it, what matters to them, you know, the feel of it. Actually getting into bread, if you, if you are on the baking wagon or you're getting into the baking wagon, uh, the Bible for most bread people is Tartine Bread, is one book by, by Chad Robertson. And before they released the book, he made a video talking about why he loves bread. And it's like two minutes long. It is a promo video for a book on baking. But he's a cool surfer dude in San Francisco. And he's talking about like the, the rhythm of surfing and the way the, the moisture in the air and the fogs in San Francisco impact the temperatures and the timing of the bakes of these different uh, uh, cafes that he works with or around. And like, I love that stuff. Give me a reason to believe in you and I'll give you stacks of money. You know, and I believe there's lots of weird customers who are not the same as me, but are like me. And they are the customers that I want. Yeah. I don't want somebody who's not interested, right? It's fine. They can go to almost anywhere else and they will be made happy. But if you want an adventure, come and go somewhere that will offer you an adventure and enjoy it for what it is. Well, that's my soapbox. Well, well, Dale, I think that's an excellent point to sort of finish on. We've, we've, this is this is the lot. This is definitely the longest podcast we've ever had on the Sub Zero Coffee podcast. And like I said, I could I could speak to you all day, and I hadn't actually spoken to you or met you until uh, this afternoon for me. And um, you know, it's it's a very it's an excellent experience hey. because you know I watched I watched you win the World Brewster Championship live. I was I remember the experience very. Um, very clearly, I was sitting in a park watching. It was a very sunny November afternoon in Australia, and I was sitting in a park with my phone and, and headphones in, and watching um, watching the World Brewster Championship. And you know, I sat there for hours, got very sunburnt until you uh, until they announced you the winner. And it's um, you know, I'm fangirling a little bit having you on here. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's excellent. And, um, yeah, thank you so much. I, for- it's a real honor and. I cannot wait to come and hang with you for a day. I come and work. So we didn't really talk about the detail of what you're doing, uh, but I really want to understand all the detail. So when the store is back open and I'm able to get there, I can hang with you for like an afternoon. I'll make some coffee with you and really try and get my head around all the things you're doing. Not, not just the headlines, but like the detail. Cause I often find it's the, the big things anyone can copy. You know, anyone can see online and they go, I can buy a freezer, I can do this. It's the little details that make it work that are really hard to both explain and to repeat. Well, uh, we've got a YouTube channel coming soon and we're, gonna, we're going to elaborate on some of this stuff and open the doors a little bit. Not, we're not going to tell everyone all of our secrets, but we're going to open the doors a little bit to, to how we do things at Sub-Zero and why we do them and, um, you know... I'm, I'm looking forward to people enjoying it. I'm looking forward to people questioning it. I'm looking forward to people savaging us and, and saying, you know, fuck you, you're wrong. But that's all part of it. And, um, you know, I very much look forward to that. And I absolutely uh, would love to have you come and hang out with us on the on the bar. You know, by the time you come, we maybe we're at that sort of 500 coffee mark and, you know. Hey, we'll don the lab coat as they go get off the plane. Oh, it's going to be fantastic. <laughs> but... 
Once again, Dale, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And as always, everyone, stay cool. Stay cool.